Well, this is going to be a great show, everyone. I've asked James Dauma. He is the foremost expert outside of somebody who's actually working at Tesla to give us, um, kind of reveal to us and explain to us more about the upcoming Tesla bot and the general AI in general in its early stages. This is going to have massive changes coming to our lives and to this world, and it's coming very, very soon. So literally next month, on September 30th, we are expecting Tesla to do a demo of their Tesla bot, which is a general purpose humanoid robot. And there needs to be more discussion about what we're going to expect that's going to be revealed. I want to do a deep dive, not just on the form factor, so the, the hands, the, the body, where's the batteries going to be placed, um, the biped legs, but more importantly, the brain. So what will the bot's abilities be for thinking and communicating? Uh, the bigger picture, of course, is Tesla's road to general AI. This is it. This is the time when AI is, a, is being birthed and at some point will become much smarter than humans. So what is this impact to the world, to Tesla, to Tesla the stock, and so forth? So, all right. Are you ready to get brighter? Sure. Let's go. Let's say hello to James Dauma. James Hello, how are you doing? Thank hey, you for joining. Thanks for having me on. Nice to <laughs> see you. So you called yourself a deep learning dork. <laughs> and I saw on Reddit as early, probably even earlier than this, 2017, that you started writing like kind of long, long form reports on neural networks Tesla's autopilot way back then. And you've been a regular on Dave Lee's uh, channel. You guys have been following full self-driving as well as bot development. But what really got me interested was you actually predicted the Tesla bot months before they revealed and announced the project. So why, you know, start with that. Why did you think and know, felt, predicted that it was going to be inevitable? And why specifically a general purpose humanoid form? as opposed to all the other bots we've been seeing that is like everywhere right now with all sorts of different, you know, best practice or best form that's possible for the task itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, so it, that's not, I didn't actually make a prediction that Tesla was going to do this just to be okay. clear on this. Um, uh, Dave and I had uh, had a chat where we talked about AI in general and he asked, you know, if Tesla's doing all this AI stuff, where else could they go? And the, the talking about where AI can go is is a is a, is tough because it like where it can't go is a much shorter list of things. It's <laughs> it, it's such a well, it's kind of like you know how much of what humans can accomplish is because they're intelligent, right? And and how much is because of like everything aside from intelligence. When you start breaking down the interesting things. If you take intelligence off the table, you know, it's humans are just another primate, right? We're, we're unremarkable. So adding intelligence mm -hmm. makes a really big difference in the potential. And, um, you know, AI, um, people anthropomorphize it. They, they tend to, I mean, thinking about AI in terms of what people can do and human capabilities and whatnot, it's a way that anybody can kind of relate to it. It's a way I can explain it to my mom that, you know, that, that, that a newspaper can write an article for general consumption about it, mm. but it, it can lead you to, it can be misleading in the mm. sense that, um, 
you know, artificial intelligence is just essentially making the machines a lot smarter. And anytime we add a significant capability that seemed like it was off the table before, it kind of gets put in the category of artificial intelligence for a little while. And then once we can do it for a couple of years, all of a sudden it doesn't seem so magic anymore and people right. stop calling it artificial intelligence. Anyway, David asked me, you know, what, what else could Tesla do with this stuff? Yeah. And what I had said was, well, what I wish they would do, what I want them to do is a humanoid robot. Because my observation was like, they have all the ingredients to do it and mm. somebody should do it. It's a really, like, it's going to be, you know, incredibly impactful, more like I, I have very high expectations for what automated driving systems are going to mean to the world, uh, you know, in terms of economic impact, in terms of improving people's lives, in terms of making life safer and that kind of stuff, in, t in terms of making life more fun, you know, in helping people who are disadvantaged. I mean, just like all the good mm. things you can get out of that. But, but humanoid robots are like that times a hundred it, because, mm. We do a lot with, I mean, cars do a lot. Transportation is a big part of our lives and our economic infrastructure. A, a lot of the things that we do that are fun rely on cars or some kind of transportation. Uh, and and robot, you know, one, a humanoid robot, it drops into the space that a human being drops into, right? If you if we make a robot in a human form factor and it's and it's capable, it's physically capable in the way that humans are physically capable. It can sit in a chair, it can carry a suitcase, it can, you know, chop a carrot. You know, if it can do all of these, the range of dexterity and, and strength and form factor and stuff. I mean, there's this, the funny thing, one funny observation is like, if you have a, if you have a humanoid robot, like the cars, all the cars can drive themselves because the robot can just get in the car and drive it, right? <laughs> so there's all well, kinds of interesting extensions that you just automatically get when you have a robot that is the shape of a human and drops into a human world. Now, at the time, Dave was on a kick where he was talking, he was thinking a lot about, you know, delivery robots, delivery drones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Amazon has a lot of uh, flying delivery, you know, drone technology has been in the works for a while, Amazon famously, but others too. And, uh, and they're grocery delivery by drones that drive down right. the street. They're little ones the size of water coolers or some that are almost right. the size of a car. They do grocery delivery. And he, uh, Dave was, you know, we talked about the last foot solution. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, mm -hmm. okay, so this thing gets a grocery to your curb. Well, how do they get to your house or whatever? Mm -hmm. And you can, if you think about the whole range of things that you, you places you might want to deliver groceries to, right? Um, a suburban neighborhood, a rural farmhouse a high rise, you know, <laughs> in China, uh, you know, so what shape do you have to make a robot? Because in typically what we've done is we build robots bodies and we suit them very specifically to some task we want them to do. So a delivery robot that drives on the street, well, you give it wheels because they're very efficient. Mm -hmm. You know, roads are made for things with wheels and that kind of stuff. But as soon as you get to the curb, you have a problem. Well, do the wheels go over the curb now? Mm. Do I have to have do I have to have legs or, you know, but, uh, you know, a wheeled vehicle with a two-legged human-sized bipedal, uh, you know, delivery thing that has a hand that can open a door or press a button on an elevator, right? Mm -hmm. Once you adopt a human form, all of a sudden, all the all of the infrastructure of the world that we've already adapted to human beings, suddenly it works for that robot. And yeah. if you if you do something that's more specialized, you know, Roomba can vacuum your house, but you can't <laughs> put away your dishes. You know, it as soon as you sp start specializing something to its task, you give up the generality. Yeah. So now the human form is weak in many respects. It's 
like because it's not specialized, it starts out with this huge disadvantage for almost anything that you want to do. And the one place it really excels is when you want to drop it into a job that it, that a human can already do, that we've already adapted. You know, we, we have all these hand tools. There are hand tools. You use them with mm -hmm. your hands. Humans use them with their hands. All of a sudden, you know, every hand tool in your factory is a tool that a humanoid robot can use, potentially, mm -hmm. you know, if it has mm -hmm. human hands. Um, mm -hmm. Similarly, the walkways, all of the everything that you don't have to put on a pallet in a factory is designed to be something that's sized and uh, and uh, apportioned and uh, and weighted so that a human being can pick it up, whether it's boxes of parts or tools or that kind of stuff. So all of those jobs, the humanoid robot can automatically do because we already make those jobs work for humans. So that's the fascination and the power of mm -hmm. a human form is that if you if you can do it now, uh, you know, we mostly, uh, not just in the robotics community, but kind of in general perception, the human, humanoid robots have kind of been a joke uh, because it's really hard to make uh, a robot the size of a human being that's the shape of a human being that has physical capabilities that can match. I mean, humans are amazingly dexterous. Like our ability to move around in the right. world, it's just, yeah. it's shockingly good. And once once I make something anthropomorphic, if it's not as good as a human, it looks like a retarded kid or a crippled old <laughs> man at best, right? That's at best. Uh, so, so, you know, att attempts to do this uh, have tended to yield things that, an that most people look at and your intuition is this thing is crippled. It's useless. It can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, dexterity is hard. It's going to be a while before robots can chop carrots, right? Like chopping carrots is a super so, high dexterity job. Yeah. Earlier, you said that you had seen that you thought that Tesla has all the ingredients to yeah. make this. And so, I want to ask you, what are the key key things that every uh, anybody who's trying to create a viable humanoid robot needs to have? We've seen many different kinds of robots out there, but you know, is it true that you would need to have a supercomputer, that you would have to need neural networks, then you'd need to have the factory to produce these robots. So what other companies could possibly even do this? Would it be something like a Google, as opposed to a Boston Dynamics that have been able to show the, the form factor and be able to do leaps and parkour and others. But what did you say when you said, I think that Tesla has all the ingredients, specifically what are they that you would need to have to do something that's useful? Yeah. Uh, so the thing that's moving fast in AI right now is neural networks. That's just where we are. Um, a lot of AI is not just neural networks. AI is like all attempts to substantially increase the envelope of the uh, well, thinking, for lack of a better term, capabilities of our machines are. Uh, and, uh, you know, neural networks didn't start working until recently, and AI goes back like 100 years. People have been looking at lots of other ways to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, um, we had chess playing computers that didn't right. run on neural networks. Um, and, of course, people tried to use non-neural network techniques to make robots for a long mm -hmm. time. Um, it Neural networks are especially good at a number of the problems that... AI hasn't been able to deal with up until now. One of the reasons that neural networks are so revolutionary is because they're like 
a puzzle, they're like a puzzle piece that fits into a hole in the puzzle of our capabilities right now. Mm -hmm. So there's been this hole for a long time that's prevented us from doing all kinds of interesting things. And we needed a thing that was a certain shape to, to snap in there. And mm -hmm. that was the ability to learn uh, and adapt the ability to, uh, to, to take an action based on, uh, let's see, I'm trying to use non-technical terms, <laughs> a really complicated input, like a, a picture. If you, you if, um, if you want to build a camera, the, like I, I, I have a friend, uh, we've been talking about this stuff for a really long time. And I have this canonical example of like a security camera that you put in your backyard and it just mm -hmm. tells you if your kid fell in the pool. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's a super simple device. In principle, you can make it for like 10 bucks. And mm -hmm. when, when people start making them, it'll probably become illegal to have a pool where you don't have one without a camera or any kids around because it's such a simple and useful and it could be made super inexpensively, but we can't do it. We haven't been able to do it until now. We could do it now. And, at, mm -hmm. at, you know, some, at some point somebody will come up with a $30 camera you stick on the side of your house and it's Wi-Fi connected and it just looks at your pool and tells you if anybody fell in. Right. So you get an alarm system or whatnot for that kind of stuff. The thing is taking a stream of video or an image and sorting those pixels into, you know, swimming pool, human being, posture analysis, are they in the pool or are they out of the pool? Do they look like they're in trouble? Because you don't want it to go off if people are just swimming. You want, you know, it's got to be able to understand who it is. You know, there's a lot of subtlety to this. And doing that just from a stream of pixels on video, the input is extremely complicated. It's a huge amount of data. And the data itself you know, at first glance, it's very far removed from the decision you want, which is, is somebody in trouble in the swimming pool? There's, you know, there's, there, there, you have to turn it into, I mean, pixels have to turn into uh, shapes and those have to turn into objects and those objects have mm -hmm. to turn into things around a swimming pool or not around a swimming pool. Some of those objects become people. And then there's, how do the objects move in time? There's all these layers of understanding that you need to get on top of that. And in the past, when people tried to sit down and write programs, you know, a program is like a recipe for, for, for making a cheesecake or something, you know, you've got, you have a line, you have all these very specific lines that say, do this with the data, do this with the data, do this. And then if you see this in the data, do that and so on, but they're all at a very low level. The problem of doing the kind of stuff like image processing, being able to look at an image and tell if it had a dog yeah. or a cat in it, yeah. it's it's been computationally intractable. It's completely, completely off the table as far as a machine capability until neural networks started working, which is mm -hmm. like inside the last 10 years. That was completely impossible. And now it's trivial. High school kids do it all the time. <laughs> so the, the thing about neural networks, the thing they changed was they took this set of capabilities, the, the, the advent of neural networks, the thing that has changed because of the advent of neural networks is that there's all of these super important, interesting, useful capabilities that we couldn't touch before. And they were so hard that experts, you know, people who've been in the field a long time, well, maybe in a hundred years, you know, I mean, yeah. the field was super pessimistic because people had tried really hard for a long time to do this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, blam, you can do it. Like it, it was just shocking how fast we went from oh. this stuff is impossible to to it's done. So like the pig, the cat dog thing, I like that example because it's a thing that you can relate to. It doesn't seem like it should be hard to write a program that says, is this a dog or a cat? Mm. And it yeah. it's just not possible. It's not like people haven't tried. It's just like you have to build something that learns from examples. It has to have the capability to, to learn from examples. And then you 
And this is just the way in the real world you have to do it. You show it dogs, you show it cats, and it figures out what the difference between a dog and a cat is. And once you've got that kind of capability where something can try to do something that's really complicated, turning a bunch of pixels into dog or cat, it's an, it's an astoundingly complicated information problem. It's just really, really hard. And so now that we build systems, now that we can build systems that can take this torrent of data from the real world and turn it into something a human can describe at a human level, like, is there a kid in the pool? Like that's a very, to a human, that's a very simple concept. To a machine, that's an extraordinarily complicated thing to get to. So I think you need neural networks to do robots. I've thought this for a long time. Uh, you know, just like I think you need neural networks to do the self-driving car thing. Well, people started working on self-driving cars, like the biggies you know, um, that are out there. Most, most of the large, substantial entities outside of, of Tesla, aside from startups that are even younger than Tesla, most of which are quite small, the people working in the self-driving car space, they started before there were neural networks. You know, more power to them. It's hard. It's a really hard problem. And they it took tremendous guts and a lot of very sophisticated <laughs> technology in order to just attempt to do that problem without neural networks. And when, in my opinion, neural networks came on the scene, the game completely changed. Like everybody who was in that space, they needed to rethink what they were doing. And the, the, the problem is if you've already spent billions of dollars on a particular approach and you're technically invested in it and neural networks just came out and you're not quite, I mean, they look really good, but you know, does this technique have legs? You know, is it going to get better next year? Is it going to get better that? And the all ever since neural networks came out, the field has been kind of divided on it. A, a huge number of the experts were like, oh, yeah, you know, we saw this 20 years ago. It works for like two weeks and then you hit the limit and it's no mm -hmm. good anymore. So all the people who'd made these big investments, they were suddenly going to drop everything they'd done. I mean, they had thousands and thousands of man years invested in the way they'd done it. So what's happened? They've, they've been boiled like the proverbial frog slowly, mm -hmm. right? Because the neural networks have been getting better and better and better. But they continue to invest in their core technologies. And it's hard you know, if you're Waymo, it's really hard to throw away and start everything and start over. So in a sense, Tesla kind of got lucky right at the time when aut right. autonomy became a significant thing. Now, and this is not to take anything away from them at all, mm -hmm. because I've, you know, I've gone on the record. Like, I think to to look at the state of neural networks in, say, 2014, when when I mean, Tesla, according to the stories that we heard at the first day, you know, at the first uh, autonomy day, the schedule that they represent, like I was shocked. Like I couldn't believe that at that point in time, they were already making this big commitment to, to because in 2013, you know, the, the neural network techniques, they were hot off the press. And most of the people wow. in the field didn't think it was going to go very far. Only the really diehard people who'd been looking at it for a long time were super enthusiastic about this. Like to the point where they would have gone to their investors and say, "Okay, that company, shut it off. We're going to start over because this this you new know. technology changes everything." Nobody said that, no. but but Tesla did. Tesla they looked at this. They it, you know it, the tech the technology in 2013. There was no way you could do self driving cars with that tech. So betting the company on that technology was a bet that 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 the technology was going to extend itself it was going to become more capable and you were and it was going to turn into the thing that could let you do that and that took a lot of guts it took a lot of insight and they did it okay why is this relative to robots because robots are the same in my opinion right in fact robots are like this on steroids um to the extent i mean 
driving a car in the real world is a fairly unconstrained problem. The number of things that can end up on a highway is without limit. Right. right? You have to be able to recognize every imagine everything that could fall on a on a road or everything, you know, everything that uh, that you know, any animal could walk onto the road. Yeah. Any any object can fall from the sky or fall off a truck. Uh and uh getting to where you know, you you can build a machine that operates with that variety of circumstances and operate in, you know, and doesn't do anything really stupid. That That's really tough to do. And yet, like a bipedal humanoid robot has to do all that, too. Like, we want it to be able to walk on a sidewalk. We want it to be able to walk on a crowded city street and not, not, not and not bump into people. We want it to be able to operate in an elevator, but we also want it to be able to sit in a chair. We want it to be able to stand and, you know, navigate a kitchen. And, uh, you know, roads are pretty complicated. A lot of stuff happens there. But when you open the world up to every single place that a human being can go, like every sidewalk, every forest, every beach, every boat, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, the space is much larger. So it's it, you know, it's, it shares a lot with the driving problem, but it's just much, much bigger. So, Can you take the FSD beta and make it the robot's brain? Um, Elon's called these cars robots themselves. They are. Or, but it's very specialized, like you said, for car driving autonomy. But is there is it is it a straight port? Because it's just simply at the end of the day, it's a super a supercomputer with neural network that learns how to recognize and and learn how learns how to learn and recognize real world objects. Or is it going to be a totally separate, you know, division of the um, the learn? Uh, totally, they'll they'll spread it out and create separate neural nets. There's like at the end of the day, there's probably not going to be a lot of shared code between okay. the car and the yeah. robot, and that doesn't really matter um, because the code is like nothing. The code of uh, you can build. Um, like GPT three, this is a, is a large mm -hmm. language model. It's 176 billion parameters that OpenAI uh, developed a couple of years ago. It's it, it's kind of the current benchmark for really large language models. Like people look at that as an example of like, well, 176 billion parameters. It gets you this set of capability, and it costs this much to make, and it needs this big a computer and that kind of stuff. Um, so GPT-3, the actual code is like 5,000 lines, 10,000 lines. Like it's a few pages wow. of code, right? But it's 176 billion parameter model because in a neural network, <laughs> it's not a lot of code. The code is really simple. The, the challenge, you know, this is one of the things that we learned from learning algorithms. They're not actually that complicated. Like you can write them in. I mean, if you want to really optimize it to your hardware and do all kinds of things, you can throw all these bells and whistles on. And so the actual code base of GPT-3 will be bigger than that. Right. But um, I think it was if you watch the if you're interested in there's a great documentary that was done about AlphaGo. Uh, you can yes, get on I've Netflix. Seen YouTube I've seen it. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's a great, great intro. So there's a inter, one of the guys uh, on the DeepMind team said, he said, AlphaGo is a very simple program. Like people don't understand. It's a few pages yeah. of code. There's almost nothing to it. And it's true. And yet it it's it solved this unsolved challenge that nobody thought was going to happen in 10 years or something at best. 
And you know, uh, this is the power of a learning algorithm. That figuring out the exact mix of things, like how to get it to learn and to learn fast and to learn with not too much data and to learn something that can run on a reasonable computer, like those are tricky. But it turns out that once you have the answers, it's like E equals MC squared or whatnot. You know, there's all this work and it gets distilled down to this one little truth, which is incredibly mm. powerful once you have it. Nice. And that's Deep learning is a series of those little truths that we're learning. We're getting all these little nuggets of information that end up being incredibly powerful because they let us build these systems that can do things that we've dreamt of for hundreds of years and we're and are now within reach. So but, building a humanoid robot is within reach now, but it's not, you know, it's not happening next year. You're not gonna see well, that's what I was gonna ask you. So the the body it seems like it's going to be easy to do relatively because we've seen all these other examples of humanoid robots. Just recently we saw as a cyber one, <laughs> Xiaomi cyber one. And then, but of course, Boston Dynamics is very impressive. But the hard part, uh, when I was watching Dennis Hong, he, he has in Univers University of California, LA, UCLA, and he's had this uh, lab for decades. And he shows seven different robots. And he said the hardest part is bipedal walking. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 um, is it time? Because you can create the humanoid body, but can you actually have the brain to do this when we barely have robotaxi, you know, not even near FSD yet, or it's getting there, it's still learning how to recognize stop signs and stop lights and the roadway. Is it time that you can actually teach a humanoid robot? And how would you teach it? Is it just is it just watching somebody do an activity once and then it'll do it many times and then that's what it'll be able to do that activity? Or how, how does that how's that gonna happen? So there are many approaches that are being taken to uh, to teaching. Well, let me take a step back. I, yeah. I would like to submit that the body is not actually easy. And one of the reasons okay. that I wanted to see Tesla do this was because I could see them making the kind of commitment to making the bodies work that's necessary. So Boston Dynamics, they do some great stuff, but almost yeah. everything they make is the kind of stuff that some talented guys with a machine shop can make. Like you can start with billets of metal and that kind of stuff and do this. That most of the actuators and most of the precision elements of a Boston Dynamics, or they're, they're things that they buy. And they're things that were originally designed for not robots. They were designed for something else, right? So they're building a robot out of not robot parts. It's not a bad robot, you know. But if you make a part, well, like the original iPhone, the first iPhone mm -hmm. that came out, and you compare them to iPhones today, and they seem super clunky. And one of the differences was that the original iPhone was made out of not iPhone parts. The parts weren't made for an iPhone. They couldn't have mm. been because there weren't any iPhones. They weren't made like the CPUs, the chips, the batteries, all the stuff that went into it. Eh, the battery, some of them, some of them were made for phones, but nothing was made for an iPhone at the time. As the supply chain made more parts that were for the iPhone or for a Samsung Galaxy or for a smartphone, the capabilities got dramatically better. The, you know, the the talk time got longer, they got lighter, the, the display visibility got much better. The camera capabilities have just exploded as people started making cameras for these things. And that's what we're gonna see with the robots. When, when robots are made from parts that were designed for being part of a robot, 
mm-hmm. the capabilities are going to get quite a bit higher. Now, people in the market right now, they don't have that luxury because there's no market for a million or a hundred million robots a year. Gotcha. So like yeah. feed this giant, you know, multi-trillion or billion dollar, you know, huge industry that it's going to take mm-hmm. to make all of this super specialized components to make really good robots. So some uh, several years back, I sat down and I tried to do a fir- first principles like, um, you know, could you c- can you build a robot? Like what fundamental tech, new technologies are necessary to build a humanoid robot? Like, do we need any special materials technology? Do we need new battery technologies? Do we need what kind of new chips do we need? And there were a few things that popped up to me when I did that analysis. Because the question I had in my was, could you make a $10,000 robot that has the full range of dexterity and capabilities of a human body? Like just the body, we'll just take the brain off for now. Assume that you've got the software or putting the software aside, could you do it? And when I walk the thing, I mean, there are some things that are tough. Like we don't have anything that does skin today. So like covering, we don't have a technology where you can cover the surface of the robot with a sensor, a tactile sensor mm. that has sort of the range of capabilities of skin. There are some things we don't have. Most of the stuff we want a robot to do, you don't really need skin, right? We need vision, proprioception, you know, the ability to manipulate objects. And uh, there are some advantages that human hands get yeah. from skin. Like the, the number of range, the range of motion that a human hand has is just shocking. Like it's an incredible piece of, of biomechanics. And there's, we don't make anything that can do, that can duplicate this today in the mechanical world. And we're going to need to do that at some point if we want to make robots go. Skin is part of it for, for human beings, but you can, but most of the things we really need for say dexterous manipulation of tools is stuff we can get to without skin. So I left that off. And mm-hmm. you know, when I took off the things that I thought um, we're not going to be necessary for robots that do jobs in factories or robots that deliver goods and that kind of stuff. I couldn't find any technologies that we really didn't have. The thing I thought we were the most behind in, and this is the thing that informed my comment today, was I looked at the actuators, the power hmm. density, the torque density that you can in principle get from an electric actuator. Like, say, I'm building a humanoid robot and I want it to have roughly the shape of a human being, right? So I need to get the actuators inside the arms, like mm-hmm. having cable gizmos that hang off the back of it and whatnot. You can do that, but it won't be able to fit into a human world if it's not roughly human sized. So if you want to make the robot inexpensive, like if we're optimizing it for that, we want to fit the actuators into the joints. I could put a bunch yeah. of motors in the chest cavity and control all the arms and, and whatnot with cables running through, but they have, right. there's all these mechanical problems that you run into when you do that. Like, you know, cables stretch, they have to run over tension points and that kind of stuff. They add bulk. I mean, there's advantages <laughs> of centralizing your actuators, but there's all these problems it introduces. The ideal actuator is one that's got all the degrees of freedom. It fits inside the joint space that you want. And it has a torque power profile, which is roughly comparable to a human joint. We want a robot to, it weighs about mm-hmm. what a human does. It, it's got about, it's about as strong as, as, as a human is. And we want, the, we want the actuators to be simple. We want them to be reliable. We want them to be watertight, right? <laughs> we want them to not Jeez. generate so much heat that the thermal, <laughs> the thermal shape, there's all these constraints, right? And it turns out, that you can, in principle, make electric, these are just basically specialized electric motors. They turn at very low speed and have extremely high torque. They're very compact and they're extremely efficient. So I sat down and I did some paper, you know, 
rough designs on this kind of stuff. And I decided you can totally make this stuff, but it's totally unlike any actuator that exists today. There's no, yeah, okay. there's no industry because the thing about electric actuators today is you can get a lot of power density by spinning it relatively fast. So you trade off torque for power and that's the way we build motors now. And if you want something to move slow, you put a gearbox on it, but you don't want mm. gearboxes in your robots. Gearboxes yeah. have all kinds of problems too. You want a really high torque actuator that's quite compact and that could totally be done. But when I thought about, man, you know, the investment you'd have to make, because you've got to develop all these new, really core technologies for doing this kind of stuff. And then you have to develop them to a, a high degree of um, uh, polish in order to, to do all this kind of stuff. And when Dave and I were talking, I'm like, you know, if I was going to pick a company that could do that, it's Tesla. Like, I can't even think yeah. of who number two would be right now. And, and it's not just that when I think about, you know, you know, uh, the thing is they're willing to go at a problem and, and work it to get the right answer. You know, they'll, they'll work it out from first principles, look at what they need to do, and they'll make a really big bet on something they know will eventually pay off, even if it's going to be really hard. And so, you know, I, when they started working on FSD in 2016, you know, the advertising was all, oh, you'll, you know, we'll have it in a year. That's what they thought. Autopilot, right? Um, they made a huge bet, but they didn't, when they didn't have it in a year, they didn't give up. You know, they know, and I really believe they will get there. We don't, the thing is, you know, we don't know the end of it. You, you don't, until you build it, you don't know what it looks like until it's yeah. working in the real world. Cause it's complicated. Um, it is doable it is absolutely doable. Um, we're the the core technologies that go into this stuff. They're 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 advancing at just an unbelievable rate every single year. Every year since and for the last ten years, deep learning has advanced more than the experts the year before would have predicted. Right. Like every year, right. this yeah. happens. And, and despite the fact that we're shocked again and again, we continue to be shocked. When AlphaFold happened. AlphaFold, you know, people were thinking protein folding. I don't know if you know right. much about. Yes, protein. I know AlphaFold. I followed all this stuff. It's it's amazing. Yeah, they so just mapped every single folding. protein. Uh, yeah, protein folding's hard. Like it's a problem that has been worked for a really long time. You know, hundreds of, of groups of really smart researchers have worked this problem for thirty years, and they've yeah. made slow incremental progress. And if you just looked at their rate of progress you know, which is what you do when you're inside the field. You look at the rate of progress and they're like, maybe in a hundred years, you know. I heard- uh, They're hoping for a breakthrough, right? Yeah, one one PhD for every protein folding discovered. It takes one PhD, four years. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's, I, well, I mean, a, a, you know, a better description is like, it's a million dollars of protein or something like that, right? So prior to AlphaFold, I think the entire space of known, of proteins that had known structures was- was like 180,000. Mm. I think the PDB had 180,000 proteins. So at like a million dollars a piece, you know, it's $180 billion worth of investment to get 180,000 proteins. Mm. And those were just the 180,000 that we thought were the most important. And somebody pointed out, I think the day that AlphaFold came out, it was like, you know, we spent $180 billion to get these, these first 180,000 proteins. And the next and, you know, that was way less than 1% of the universe of proteins that we were wow. potentially interested in, right? And the rest are free. <laughs> I mean, 
DeepMind turned on AlphaFold and they did the rest and they gave them away for free, right? So something that's a hundred times or a thousand times bigger than a database that had had vast, vast amounts of money and expertise poured in, it's just, it's done, right? And this wasn't something that anybody a year before AlphaFold happened would have predicted. The AlphaFold guys themselves, mm. they didn't know it was gonna happen. They dove into it, mm. they tried it. In fact, uh, AlphaFold 1 and AlphaFold 2 are pretty different approaches in some mm. in some core ways. So they took a stab, they got some really good results. They had the first version of AlphaFold, woohoo, this is, and then they did the second one, and it was like, boom, done, right? You know, 18 months, <laughs> it's just, it's shocking. And this stuff just keeps happening. And the, the things that are externally visible that you can write an article in New York Times and that a lay audience is, is going to be impressed with is much smaller. The people who are actually in the field who've been looking at these much more specific metrics, these much more narrow problems that are hard to explain to outsiders, those things are just falling like dominoes. The, the last, mm. I mean, it really is shocking how fast this stuff is going. So with that as your foundation, if that's the engine that pushes your capabilities, yeah, Something that seems impossible today, many, many things that seem impossible today are going to be possible in three years. In five. So I, I want to ask you, I want to go back to the humanoid body, because you said it wasn't as easy as I initially said it was. But since the conversation is headed this way, how is Tesla going to get the millions of videos that they need to have in order to have a robot uh, be able to learn and be able to understand its environment and tag all the labels of real world objects, which is what they did for the cars, right? They had millions of miles of video and then that's what they fed it and learned how to recognize what a stop sign is and everything else. How do you think that they're going to do this? I, I've been predicting that Tesla is going to need to have AR glasses. They're going to need to have everybody wearing glasses. So when I open the fridge, it's going to record that and it's going to see what a Coke can is, what a beer can is, that my fridge is open this way. That could be one option. Um, but what? How are, how are they going to do this without without the millions of videos that they have with the cars versus so the there are So there are many different approaches to doing this stuff, just like there are many different technical approaches to doing the full. So Tesla has their approach that they're doing. And there are other people who do neural network-based self-driving approaches that are not doing what Tesla is doing. So simulation. Uh, te te Tesla built a fleet so that they could gather a lot of data and they have a lot of data. So they use their data, like their data is really core to their approach. But there are other players out there who, you know, cannot in their wildest dreams get access to the kind of data Tesla has, and they're taking different approaches. I mean, Kama AI is an interesting example, right? Kama's mm -hmm. betting on uh tech adv technical advantage. Like Kama AI, they're they need a pretty significant leap forward before their for their technology to start being able to drive cars, like really drive cars the way FSD is trying to drive cars. It's not impossible. Like the tech has had these great leap forwards many times in in the last few years. Uh, Tesla's approach does not require the same degree of great leap forward that Kama AI's does. Other players, because they take different approaches, they're they're betting on other technical advances that, that do not yet exist, that they themselves might make or that someone else might make that they can adopt mm -hmm. into their framework, just like Tesla can adopt stuff in. So uh, 
Tesla talks a lot about their data advantage and they do have a data advantage, but the data advantage isn't the only advantage they have. And collecting a lot of data is not the only way to go about doing these things. And in fact, Tesla has to some extent moved away from catching, capturing tons and tons of data. They're, hmm. the, uh, the auto label system actually in, in certain respects, it uses a lot less raw data to produce more valuable training stuff. So the amount of data that you need uh, depends on, well, uh, as neural networks get better, we get better and better at training them with less data. And eventually mm -hmm. it's going to take a lot less data than it takes now. Um, there's different kinds of data. There's data which has been crafted to be exactly what you need for your problem. And then there's data out in the world where there's tons and tons of data, but it's not a good fit for what you want. And so there are techniques that use all this data that's out there. Because, I mean, you know, if you look at all the video on YouTube of human beings, <laughs> Yeah. There's a lot of training information there. Like if your algorithm can use data Just from YouTube, YouTube to figure out what people do and how they do stuff, like it's an, and there's no small number of people out there working specifically on the problem of how to turn YouTube videos yeah, into stuff that, that a rope that, yeah. that can be used to train a humanoid robot. The other thing you can yeah. do is like video game. I mean, video game is a simulation. A simulation is a video game, right? These 3D video games where you move around inside space. So simulation is a great component of how you can go about training because the the the, the physics of react most of physics, the basic stuff, like there's objects, space is 3D, this is how light travels through it. Um, you know, this is the shape yeah. of things and these are the rough forces you need to lift a box or push a box or open a door. Like the rough outlines of that stuff can be encoded in a simulator pretty simply. And there's a very large body of work that's going on in learning to train robots in simulation, not just robots, other things too, but uh, there. So that's got huge strengths. You can have, you know, if you've got enough computers, you can gain all the experience you want. You can have these outlandishly unlikely scenario. Like you can drive your car and crash into trees and stuff in simulation. It doesn't matter, you, you, right? You can explore the whole space of possibilities and let the computer decide, okay, I don't want to run off the road because I got a bad reward for that last time. Um, so that's another technique that will get used, simulation. And inside the space of simulation, there are many different approaches that you can use to using simulation. Well, I've, I've heard uh, Elon say, in order to do full self-driving, you need to have three things. You need to have a supercomputer, you need to have neural networks, and you have to have a billion miles of video of people driving. Now you're saying, well, maybe they can get away with just simulation. <laughs> well, eventually people will do it with less than a billion miles gotcha. of driving. I mean, human beings learn it. And we don't drive a billion miles before we get there. Uh, human beings, we 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 develop a lot. So human beings have a, uh, a there's this term foundation model, hmm. where you you learn something basic from just a lot of unstructured data about the real world, and then you take the model that you get from that and you use it as a component of a more specific system. So. GPT-3 is this kind of model, this big language model that I mentioned before, the 176 billion parameters. So language models, it used to be that if you wanted to tra train once upon a time, you know, you, somebody had to sit down and say, this is the noun, this is the verb, this is what the sentence means, that here it is in French and German, Italian, right? You'd need this, these, this very carefully crafted data and you'd feed that into networks or models and you would train that way. But that's not, nobody trains language models that way. Now, 
for a while, we trained language models with these very specialized corpora, which had been, you know, you would go to, you would gather like a whole lot of books, books that you had electronic data on, or you would gather a bunch of web pages, or you would go to some forum like uh, a chat forum or something like that. And you would gather a bunch of data and then humans would go through it and they would curate it to make, to structure it in a way that less data would get you more learning and wouldn't they, you yeah. wouldn't learn the wrong things, right? And now they don't even do that. They do, they crawl the internet and they just take it all and they just dump it in a giant hopper and they have a machine yeah. crank on it. And they do a little bit of, they do a little bit of automated, but you know, the corpora are trillions and trillions and trillions of words. Like they're way too, not, like no human can touch the size, the amount of data. So you can do these very rough things. And so you dump that huge amount of data. So what is, so what's going on here? Like, how is it you can just dump anything in there? <laughs> And it learns. And the, the the thing is, they train a foundation model. What the and this is actually pretty clever. All that GPT does when you train it is you give it a sentence and you block out some of the words and you tell it what are the missing words. Right, that's the whole task. You give it another sentence and you block out some of the words and it has to guess the missing words. So this seems like I'm training a neural network that just gains, that just guesses the missing words and sentences, right? Like how is this useful for like translating French into German? Uh -huh. It turns out it is really useful. I mean, for, for doing that kind of thing or for answering questions, right? What happens is if you train it on enough data, it doesn't, in order to be really good at guessing the missing word, it has to develop a very sophisticated model of the language itself. And that becomes yeah. a foundational model. It becomes a language model. And then once you have that language model, you go out and you build this language model. And, it, you know, GPT probably costs five or $10 million to train. That's just the final training run. Like you can, they spent wow. millions and millions of dollars like working out the techniques. It's a super, super expensive model. But once you have it, you can build all these other things on top of it. Because now you have this building block, which is like language. And once you have language in a box, there's all these other things that you can do with it. You can make a chat bot. You can, you can make something that like reads newspaper articles and tells you if the sentiment is positive or the sentiment is negative. Uh, you can have something that searches through legal documents and says, is this document related to this document? You know, it, all right. So, so yeah, let, let me, let's get back to the bot then. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I had a foundation models for bots. I had assumed many of us thought that the way that you're going to teach a bot is to copy. So you're going to watch me grab that Coke can from the fridge and open in the fridge, grab the Coke can and close it. And now it's going to be able to redo that over and over again. It's going to watch me fold a napkin and then it's going to copy that. But are you saying that maybe the mate do this is almost like the way a human baby is born, like a toddler. It figures out, you know, <laughs> how to balance itself, how to just grab things no matter what it is. And then just okay, so figure out. Yeah, something manipulable, you know. This is a moving target, around. right? Yeah. Because the, like the way that some that you would try to build a, a self-driving car like five years ago is different from how you do it today because the technology has advanced, right? The field learns. And as the field learns, you you discover better ways to do stuff. Now, there are things that we that we know in principle are doable, but we haven't a clue how to do them right now. You know, I am, you know, myself quite confident, many others are quite confident that we will get there in terms of these developing these foundational capabilities and build eventually being able to build machines that can learn from a relatively small number of examples 
for a specific task. So, so this is a, a thing a human being can do, right? Like I don't have to learn to move my arm every, you know, if I want to learn to juggle, I can already, you know, see objects and I already know about gravity. There's all this stuff I know about the real world. So when I start, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not like I have to train a baby to walk and talk and recognize objects and all that kind of stuff. And then I give it the juggling balls and then it learns, right. It's, it's, when when a, when an adult learns to juggle, you start with all this with all this information. And one of the great things is that about this is that it's naturally unstructured information that goes into mm -hmm. foundational models. Mm -hmm. You, uh, I mean, it's been observed for a long time that one way of modeling the way you know human performance in the real world is that the human brain is constantly predicting the next thing you're going to see. Yes. The next thing you're going to feel, the next thing, you're, what's going to taste, what something's going to taste like. So, you know, one one way of thinking about what the brain does is it builds a model of the world and it's constantly predicting. Now this will happen. Now this will happen. No, this will happen. No, you'll hear this. You'll feel that. He'll say this. He'll do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's wrong a lot, but it's constantly fine tuning that model. And it uses that model to, mm. to predict what will happen if it does yeah. various kinds of things. So you get to a point where you don't have to do the experiment and you don't have to have the data because you've built a world model that will tell you. Like, you know, I could take an aborigine out of a rainforest, right? And I could sit him in my living room and I could watch over, I could walk over to the fridge, open the door, take out a beer can, crack it, right? And he could yeah. do that like that. He yeah. doesn't need to practice it 50 times. Right. Even though it, he doesn't know what a refrigerator is and he's never seen right. a beer can before. Right. He can learn that really quickly because he's got a very sophisticated model of the world and himself and how he act moves. And, and that's that's what we'll do with robots eventually. Right. So the first robots probably won't like everything. The first version of something gets built in some hokey way as a proof of concept. And it was our first try. So the first robot that we get, you know, it'll be like that. The Boston Dynamics is. You know, they built robots from not robot parts because we don't have robot parts, really. You know, and they're they're doing, I'll call it a first try. I mean, I don't want to put these guys down. They're very capable and they That's do really very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a first try. And things it the the field is really going to change. And you know, you're gonna see something come out, and then a year later, you're gonna see something dramatically better. So whenever you talk about this stuff, you you need to keep in mind that every prediction you make, it really it needs to have a time frame on it. Because yeah. two years later, 10 years later, the field is has moved way beyond that. So, you know, my expectations for what we see for Tesla bot, I'm really excited to see what they've done because what they show us will give us an idea of what problems they think are important, what they're focusing on in the short term. Like, I'll be really interested. Are they working on the actuators, right? Like, I think the actuators in the long run are really important problem. They're really hard problem. Were you, su really were you surprised to see that it was three fingers? Or is that what well, you, you mean? That picture yeah, that came heart, out? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. not. Those aren't robots. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a mannequin. <laughs> really? We're talking about the AI Dave picture with the chrome hands? Yes. Yeah, those are those that they're those are non-functional. <laughs> That's just a picture. And I, it's I've seen a lot of interpretation because I think people think that that's actually the yeah. robot. Um, Sneak peek. You know, you let me just point out: if you were making a robot, you wouldn't put stainless steel fingertips on it, right? You would. It, it, it'd be trying to be like trying to pick up a Coke bottle with chopsticks or something, right? Because you need something with a squishy, grippy surface on it on your fingers. 
I'm sorry. Interesting. <laughs> you're you're just dropping a lot of gems here right now. Um, okay. Well, no, that's it's, really cool. You can, see, you can see where the joints are, right? It's two pieces of metal with like a with just like a pin through them. There's no actuator in there to move the finger. All right, let's talk about the bot body again, because I've got a whole bunch of questions. And I know you said that you're not going to, you know, these are all speculation. Who knows what's going to happen? But what material are they going to use? I, we've heard that they don't necessarily need to use steel because they want it to be something that's um, a little bit more lightweight, but also less uh, less chance to hurt humans. I don't know if this is optimistic or or that's they might still use steel. Um, where is the battery going to go? Is there a battery large enough to power this? How strong is this going to be? Where's a charge port going to be located? <laughs> and can it walk? Do you think that they're going to come out with a biped? Uh, Giant AI, uh, Robert Scoble had done a video of them, and I'd watched it just mm. a month ago. And they were just torso up because they don't want to worry about the fact that the bipedal walking. Dennis Hong said that walking is the hardest problem, and they've not solved it. They've not figured after these decades of them trying to figure out how to make a mm -hmm. robot walk. Yet you had Boston Dynamic that's all doing all sorts of things. So, right, yeah, bunch of questions. So you you frequently uh, so people when uh, when DeepMind was was working on Go, people experts in the field were super skeptical about mm -hmm. the ability to do that. Um, people who've been in a field for a long time. Uh, are often not the they they often don't make the best predictions about what happens right. when the revolution comes down. So all uh, due respect to the experts in the robotics field, but I think a lot of robotics experts are going to end up being wrong and surprised mm -hmm. about how things proceed. Uh, I do think that Tesla will do a bipedal robot. I don't know if they will demonstrate it. Um, mm -hmm. Bipedal locomotion is is a hard problem. Um, but we are making really good progress. And I think bipedal locomotion will be there. So to, uh, to get a humanoid, there's a bunch of core capabilities you need. And one is locomoting in the world. Another one is just understanding the world around you. Mm -hmm. uh, my own evaluation of this stuff is that perceiving the world around you is actually a much harder problem than the locomotion part is. Right. And that significant parts of the locomotion problem that we have right now are that we build locomotors with with a very limited and error uh, buggy understanding of the world that they're trying to locomote through. We have to because our perception mm -hmm. isn't very good. And when you handicap your locomotion system in that way, it doesn't perform as well in the world. When perception gets better, locomotion will get better. People do locomotion for robots in simulation, including sim to real layers that are, that are laid seen, yeah. on top of this stuff that are shockingly, they're just It beautiful. just learns on its own how to walk, they're, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they do a ton of simulation, they do it. That doesn't mean it's solved. But, you know, this is one of those things that if you'd, uh, you know, if you asked people in the field five years ago, like, would we see these robots that can do super graceful backflips or that can do parkour or whatnot in simulation, most of them would have said no, because it's hard to do that stuff. They've been working a long time. And they didn't get anywhere, just like the, the the people doing protein folding had been working on protein folding a long time and had been kind of stuck. I think we're going to have these moments when uh, when the field you know develops a new technique, they figure out what the formula is for adapting this fundamental capability to this fundamental capability. Now we get the synergy and all of a sudden we get a new, you know, in a span of a year or two, 
we yeah. get we get a new capability. So I think locomotion is going to come. I think bipedal locomotion is going to come relatively soon. One of the big handicaps for loco, uh, bipedal locomotion, it's very scale dependent. So a bipedal locomotor that's 18 inches tall has completely mm. different dynamic constraints than one that's like six feet tall. And then yeah. when you add weight and that kind of stuff, it's a problem. And robots are expensive. So building walking robots, especially if you put a torso on them and they're full of expensive computers and that kind of stuff, is a very risky <laughs> undertaking, right? Because they <laughs> fall down a lot and they will break. So, because you want to make them lightweight so that you don't have to have big batteries and big actuators. And, but if they're lightweight, they break when they fall, right? Because they're not super robust. So, um, that's the one of the attractions of doing it in simulation is that your robot won't break and, and you can do that kind of stuff. But then you have to be able to make the transition to reality from simulation. And there are still some challenges there. Uh, it's getting better. We're getting better at like training robots in simulation and then sticking that in a real robot body. We mostly don't do that with humanoid robots right now. If you just want to locomote, all you need is hips and legs, right? And so people working on locomotion, they mostly, they build a robot and it's hips and legs because all they're really caring about is walking around right now. It's cheaper to do that kind of stuff. And you learn a lot of useful stuff that way. The, the four-legged spot robots, yeah, those are pretty cheap because they don't fall down oh, as easily. They're closer yeah. to the ground, and you can coat them in rubber and and that kind of stuff because the, the dynamics. And the spot robots, they're getting really good. ETH Zurich does a bunch of like really eye opening work in terms of training these completely general locomotors, and they've got completely general locomotors now, just like in the last year or so. They can basically walk on any substance. They can walk when they yeah. can't see the ground. They can they Bunk. they make trade offs between vision and proprioception. They're just amazing. Like they're, they've made incredible progress in the last couple of years on that kind of stuff. And I expect them, they will continue uh, to do that. Uh, Four-legged robots are going to come sooner because they're just an easier engineering problem to solve because of the shape and the falling down kind of thing. Bipedal is, is harder in certain respects. Actually, once you get to the scale of a human being, bipedal gets a lot easier. One of the, one of the things is the cheap robots that are 18 inches tall, it's actually harder to make them walk. And weird thing, because the, the moment of angular inertia of a taller yeah. object is lower, so you have a lot more time to respond and response time, you know, for the dynamics. And, and anyway. Is uh, it a given that Tesla's going to do only a human robot versus like I was joking around with some friends saying that they're going to do an R2-D2 in addition to the C-3PO? <laughs> I think they'll do the humanoid robot. I don't know if they'll do any narrow specialized robots. Maybe they will. They On the way, you could do it. You could do all kinds of things. Uh, I'm excited about the humanoid robot. I My pref preference would be to not see them get distracted with narrow specialized robots and to stay, yeah. to go for the prize, which is, and, yeah. they, and I expect the robots to take a while. Like I'm super excited about what they're doing. I think on the way to the full on, the you know, the one that can fold your laundry, the one that can put dishes yeah. in the dishwasher, both of which are extraordinarily hard things yeah. to do for a robot. Yeah. On the way to that robot, you can do all you can do lots of intermediate things that are really useful. Just for Tesla, just a materials handling robot that carried cardboard boxes around the factory. Like that would make their materials handling system in, the, in inside their factory really useful. It's a narrow problem. You could you can have relatively restricted actuators, restricted environments. Like that's a good starting point for that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think bipedal is pretty fundamental. I think they'll do bipedal. That's my prediction. We will see if so, I'm not. Yeah. Wrong about September that. 30th comes. They're going to do the demo of the bot. Um, 
they're not going to be, it'd be embarrassing if what they came out with wasn't as good as, um, as uh, Boston Dynamics. And, but they need to show the brain. They need to prove that this is different than all the other bots out there. What kind of a demo would you do if you wanted to show that this is truly a, an intelligent robot that can navigate the environment, recognize what to do? Will it talk? Just start with that. So talking is separate. And we all get to see state-of-the-art talking all the time. If you own a cell phone... Yep and you play with the apps, you can see state-of-the-art talking. And that's what they've got. And Tesla won't develop the talking themselves. There's no point. Uh, it's not their strength, and they don't need to do it. Uh, I think uh, whether it can talk or not is probably much less important than whether it can listen. I think being able to take verbal instructions and being able to take instructions by having a human demonstrate an action and having it mimic it, I think that that's a pretty basic capability that you want. I don't think they're going to demonstrate that at AI Day, I, if they if they have a humanoid robot that can walk around on stage, that's a pretty good demo. Uh, AI Day is a is a recruiting event. It's not an investor event. It's not a PR event. I don't expect to see them selling the robot soon outside. I think we'll probably see them using it in their factory for a couple of years, and and we'll probably you know I would expect them to demo that you know, as, as a demonstration of progress that they do. And I think we'll see that for a while before they bring it outside. Because the thing is, every, every 12 months that you delay bringing a product to the outside world, the product that you can deliver is going to be dramatically better. With the cars, you want to, you want to get to scale. Like Tesla doesn't want to have 10,000 of their own cars that just their employees are driving to gather data, right? That's, that's a different kind of scale. But they can gather a lot of data and get a lot of utility just with the robots that they can use internally. And I think they'll do that until it makes sense, like from a data gathering standpoint, to try to push the robots out. Yeah. That would now, be on my the other hand. Yeah, on the other hand, Tesla's modus operandi is whenever they do a demo and they show a prototype, the actual product that comes out of that is pretty close to that. It's rarely that it's, you know, they don't like to do a prototype just to wow. And, and then well, something comes completely different comes out. Uh, I would guess the robot will evolve significantly between the version that we see. Okay. Uh, and the first product that comes out. As I said, I do not expect to see them productize something. I mean, the semi is getting introduced right. by them. They have a few partners. They're going to roll the semi out and they're gonna get some experience with it in the real world. The semi didn't go from concept drawing, we built them and now anybody can buy one and use it however they want to. They're, they, I think, you know, it makes more sense to do the robot that way, where, you know, when you do go outside, you pick somebody who needs 100 robots or 1,000 robots, and you understand their environment, and you can, th this is kind of how industrial robots already get used, you know, yeah. uh, today. I mean, they're, industrial robots are fairly general, but they're highly specialized to any individual task. A general uh, robot, I think we'll see the Tesla bot evolve from something which is fairly general, um, but only used in fairly narrow applications. And we'll see the generality of its application gradually unfold as mm -hmm. the software gets better and the, the foundational capabilities get better. 
Um, kind of like autopilot started out on highways and wasn't very good at highways. And then it got okay at highways and it got pretty good at highways. And then now it's quite good at, at certain mm-hmm. highways. I mean, I'm not, I don't know how good it is if you take it to Italy or Brazil, right. And, uh, dr- you know, drive through one of the really old cities there, but, um, you know, it's gotten a lot better. And then they, you know, when they brought it to surface streets, it was good at highways before it was good at resident before it was good on suburban roads. And then, you know, and parking lots are really hard. They'll be far down the list of, perf- when I take my car, like I don't even try to do the parking lot stuff. A lot of people do more power to them. But, uh, but you know, to me, FSD right now is at the zone where like, it's pretty good on surface streets, pretty much any surface street. It's not so great with intersections. It's getting a lot better yeah. and it's terrible at parking lots. So uh, is a brain going to fit in the head? Is yeah. a battery going to fit in the torso? Is is the brain the same size as what the FSD computer is in the car? Uh, so they'll do they'll do custom silicon for the bot, just like they do for the car. the The custom silicon they use in the car, it would actually work fine in a bot, and you could drop it right in if you wanted to. Um, how, how big the, is it in the, in the car? Uh, it's uh, what you got an example. So this is just like one printed circuit board. This is the old one. This isn't, the, but the, the new one is wow. just the same shape. Um, you know, the That's silicon, it. this has a pair of redundant uh, systems in it that are, you know, the hardware three is redundant so that if anything fails, the car can still safely like shut down and drive. So it's, so in a sense, it's twice as big as it needs to be because of that. Um, the electronics, I mean, this is an automotive grade packaging and in a car, you know, there are things that you care about um, le- that you care about more than making it super lightweight and super small. But yeah, you know, it could be this big. This is a lot. This is a shocking amount of computation. The And the silicon that's inside this, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the guts of one of these things, but the phone, the phone is this is like three eighths of an inch across the top and the rest of it is battery. Yes. Yes. That's so you can yeah, make the, you can, th- there's no technical obstacle that will prevent them from putting the silicon for inference that operates the robot inside the robot's body in the short run. Right now, the, you know, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, we use really big computers to train neural networks. Like we were talking about the GPT-3 computer, you know, it mm-hmm. ran to train GPT-3 took, you know, probably um, a data center, what would it be? It would be hundreds of racks of computers for like three months or something like that yeah. to do one uh-huh. training run on GPT-3. Uh, but you can run GPT-3 on like a, a box the size of uh, of a PC that would sit on top of a desk. So okay. that's still pretty big. That's still pretty big, but it's tiny compared to the training. But similarly, yeah. Uh, in the short run. So in the long run, we want to get to, to where you build a set of foundational models. So there's this these core things, which are like re- reflexes, the ability to control your body, basic perception and whatnot, that will um, be trained externally from data for robots. You download those, they go into the machine as a set of core capabilities. And capabilities. machines probably, we want them to have a local amount, a, a local capability for optimizing their act, we, we, we're going to want robots eventually to have internal ro- ro- world models that they can use to make decisions about 
the world that they do. Yeah. It's like, actually, FSD yeah. is doing this a little bit. So, you know, FSD, they demonstrated at the uh, at Autonomy Day this little Monte Carlo rollout system that the car was using to figure out how to navigate uh, parking, lot. um, parking lots that had a lot of obstacles. Mm -hmm. So that actually has a little trained world model of a parking yeah. lot and what cars do and what pedestrians do and that kind of stuff. And when it tries to figure out the way out of the parking lot, it runs these various little simulations yeah. to figure it out. So the ability to to uh, to develop and refine those those world models at some level, that's a capability we'll want the machines to have. But you don't need a data center for that because those capabilities are built on top of a lot of foundational capabilities. The foundational capabilities, they'll get trained in data centers. So, you know, the brains that we will see, and I'm gonna make predictions, you know, this is this will be for the first like 10 years that we see humanoid robots out in the real world. We'll see very limited ability to use world models to do that. And most of the capabilities will be based on these foundation models that will get trained in data centers and refined across a fleet of robots. Yes. And then the individual robot, because there'll be a fleet of robots, just like there's a fleet of cars, right? Wow. The, the robots will learn collectively. Oh, oh the overwhelming God. majority of what they learn will be collective. <laughs> And a small amount of it will be specific to the robots eventually. Like the cars will never get there. I, I don't think we are likely to see FSD get to a point where individual cars have a significant need to learn on their own, right? And But robots will be a little bit different because, you know, uh, cars overwhelmingly operate on a shared road system. So the overwhelming amount of, of, of learning and information that a car gets is useful to lots of other cars. But everything my robot learns about my living room is not super useful to other mm -hmm. people's living rooms, right? To the extent, because rooms can be highly unique, right? Yeah. All right. So um, brains can be in the brains. Mm. Two eyes, or are they going to put so They'll put the CPU. They won't put it in the head. The battery, the CPU, actuators will go on the arms. Arms will be actuated structural. You could okay. conceivably put batteries like lower down in the legs, but I don't think you will. You'll see. Where, so like, where's the batteries? There's, there's a, human beings are built uh, a certain, the way we are for, for significant reasons. Actually, our brains go in our head because they need to be close to all the sensors that are mounted on our head. Robots, right. we probably won't do that. The heads will be cosmetic probably on robots. It, you'd put the you'd put the compute system probably in the torso along with the other stuff. But and where's the brain? Where's the where's the batteries? The battery will go in the torso. You uh, you don't want heavy stuff in the limbs because then the actuators are constantly having to move. So it's not going to be structural pack. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, Little sure. batteries. Why not? The, the muscle structural here. pack for the body. It totally makes um, sense. Do that. And is it, how big is the battery going to need to be? to power this and how many hours will this be able to do and the strength and so forth. Have you thought about how, yeah, how big the battery might yeah. be? Well, so when I did my proof of concept, just like yeah. the, the, the first walk, my, the question that I was trying to answer was like, is it possible with, you know, the, with the, the rough technology we have today, like if you spun up the industry, but you didn't have any great big advances in material technology, if you didn't have any big advances in electronic technology, or you know, if if all you had was working with the existing industries that we that we have, you know, devoted to building robots, but the same basic tech, could you build a human-sized, human dexterity, ten thousand dollar robot that could operate, run twenty-four hours on a charge? 
doing mm. the same level of physical activity a human does. So I, I sat down and I figured out what the biomechanics and energy dissipation were for a human being over 24 hours, which is You're really awesome, simple James. to do. And then simple and to it, do. Okay. Yeah. And a, a lithium battery, it works fine. You, you, you can put enough lithium battery in the torso. So now the thing is, if you, if, if I go to CATL and I buy the, you know, and I buy batteries today and I use actuators that I can get off the shelf today, there's no way you can do that. You can't even get close. Okay. Right. One of the reasons that the actuators are really, really important is because they're the primary energy dissipation for the system that the brain itself is going to be 100 watts or 200 watts or something like that. It, and it'll, it, that's the brain is actually the thing which is the least efficient. A human brain's 20 watts, like on average. Yeah, yeah, they, you know, they peak at maybe 100 yeah. when you're Most powerful really computer. peaking hard. But, uh, you know, the robot brain is going to be 100 watts or 200 watts or that kind of scale in the near term. And But the actuators, uh, robot bodies can be really efficient energy-wise, like because electric motors... You know, if you have a motor which is well suited to the tasks that you're giving it, the efficiencies are crazy high. They're like 90%. Um, I mean, human bio, biomechanical efficiency is pretty high, but it's not that high. And humans run on 100 watts, basically. The, you know, the average power usage of a human being is about 100 watts. Uh, so humans, 100 watts uh, for a day, that, that, that's a battery size of a basketball, right? Okay. Battery size of a basketball. So it's and just very doable. Speaking, right? A gallon um, of milk, something like that. You can put it in a robot torso anyway. Okay. And and then uh, humans that are powered by food, how is this going to be recharged? Is it going to be at the, uh, oh, the butt area? Is it going to be at the <laughs> finger? It won't be the finger, right? People were saying it's the finger, but, you know, that's going to, you don't want to, you want the fingers to be very, it's going to be touching. It's really interesting what people focus on. I mean, they, they, well, it's just for this is for fun. This is a lot of it fun. <laughs> Did you no, think it, about this? Doesn't matter. No, I have not thought about it. Much to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> it was, it's yeah, you, the back, you'll put right? a plug on it. Like I think inductive charging is a waste of energy. So you won't you won't go inductive. You'll put a you'll put a socket on it. It'll, maybe it'll have a Tesla connector. You know, you get the little Tesla socket. Yeah, and th that's right. So it's either the hip or it's going to be the back the and side you of the torso. stand by the wall, stand yeah. at the, the wall. That makes the most sense. Or will well, it's, you know, it's a humanoid robot. It can grab the cord and plug it in itself. Right? <gasps> it doesn't need it doesn't need an adapter or anything like that. The whole point of a humanoid robot is like it can put on its own pants. You don't have to dress it, right? It's a humanoid robot. <laughs> oh my God, this is hilarious. Uh, first use cases. So you're saying it is going to be a factory. I think we're all assuming that that's going to be the case. We saw a job description that came out recently. Did you yeah. see this where they're looking for a software developer or a tech person? And it said, you're going to be working closely with, a, you know, I think they were to carefully and or a humanoid robot mm -hmm. in a factory. It said, yeah, no, I mean, it's a perfect fit. They, they, they have all these big factories. Um, you know, a factory is kind of a restricted microcosm of the world. You there's a you there's a lot of basic stuff about the world you need to know to operate inside a factory, but it's still a fairly constrained environment. Um, you know, they can come up with these constrained activities to exercise the robots in, uh, where you know they're around people who know what they're doing and who know about the robots. You're not exposing the public to it, right? It's all employees who've been trained to deal with them and. 
how's it going to be better than what's already there? So we, I saw Amazon's warehouse and they already have all sorts of robots mm -hmm. flying around. There's the ones that carry and carry things, you know, yeah. what exactly can they use the human robot for to say, this is better than all the other robots I could buy that does not look like a human, but it does the job of moving packages. You know, like if it's just moving packages to me, there's already bots that are doing that. Mm -hmm. Why, what's the usefulness? Yeah. I Using thought that maybe- in the factory yeah. is not going to be a big benefit to the factory in the short run. The thing it's a benefit for is for learning how to build humanoid robots. Okay. So, yeah, I, th I thought maybe in the car factory, if they can show putting in the seats, uh, you know, how in you open the door and you have to go inside something, maybe a humanoid version of a robot's much more faster, quicker, better. Or at one point they were saying it's very hard to, to touch uh, foam. And so maybe this version the of a robot, robot yeah. can, can do the well, well, things. Well, well, wait, will we get AGI before we get a fluffer bot that works? <laughs> <laughs> Was it you? It might, it might said be, that... you know, one of those NP complete problems. Where, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when your humanoid robot can install the fluff above the battery, then you'll know that you've achieved something, right? But <laughs> in the short run, though, that, I, I don't think, if, if people are thinking that like Tesla having the uh, a humanoid robot that they yeah. can deploy in their factory is going to be a big advantage to the factory in the short run. I think okay. that is probably not true. When they can crank out zillions of humanoid robots that cost, mm -hmm. that are cheap because they're mass produced and they're completely general, and you can quickly train one by just having a human show it a job or give it some basic instructions verbally, to be able to do a really wide variety of flexible jobs, then the flexibility of those robots will start to be really useful because at their cost point, it will be hard to compete with them. But in the short run, like a, a specialized robot always beats a humanoid robot at the task the specialized robot is built yeah. for. So yeah, the Kiva robots that Amazon uses in their warehouse, humanoid robots are never gonna touch that. Just like a human being hauling boxes cannot compete with a forklift. The forklift is going to win carrying pallets around. Uh, the thing, the advantage the humanoid robot has is the incredible generality of it. And so it's not until you get to the kind of scale where the generality is playing mm -hmm. to the, to your, you know, where the strength of generality is something that you can use in your factory that, that you start seeing the benefits of that. And until then, it's going to be a giant black hole that they're pouring money into. Wow. Okay. Lots of gems. Just you keep throwing them out. Um, lots of things that I thought was going to happen and you're just basically saying, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're brilliant. I mean, this is exactly why I wanted to hear all this. Uh, is it going to be made of steel? No. Or is it going to be some new material? It's going to be like plastic? It's, well, I mean, you make robots out of plastic except for structural members and maybe you make those out of plastic too. It's You want something light and cheap that's easy to fabricate in complicated shapes. And that's strong enough to do the job. So, you know, you know, a, a human is, you know, yeah. five or six Hardly. feet tall and weighs 150 pounds. It's got to be able to carry, I mean, the heaviest thing will be, the actuators would, will be heavy until they get optimized. And the batteries will be heavy probably forever because you'll put as much battery in the thing as, as you can fit in there and that it can easily carry. Um, yeah, it, you know, Plastic works great. Why not use plastic? It's cheap. It's super easy to fabricate. You could 3D print your robot, right? It's a, it, you can, 
you can probably 3D print out of plastic materials that are strong enough to do the basic robot stuff in the short run. So is, is it going to be? <laughs> is it going to be the? You know the stamp. Uh, that's going to be like oh my god, carbon fiber. You know, like uh, the uh, what's his name, um, yeah. Harrison Ford. <laughs> Star Wars, it's like boom, and then there's a robot comes up. Oh, 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 oh. you stamp one out, huh? Yeah, I guess anything. Yeah, I mean, in the long run, you don't 3D print. Maybe you do in the long run. It depends on how the printers go. But I mean, 3D printing is great because you you know the design space is very unconstrained. the the dis The disadvantage of inexpensive 3D printing is that the 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 core material strength properties are not generally as good. And the, 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 you know, the fineness with which you can make uh, detailed components, isn't that great, but for major structural members, like you could do it or, you know, they're Tesla's great at bending metal. They, they've got all this metal stuff, right? So you could, you could make a metal skeleton for the thing. If you wanted to have a framework that you were going to hang all the other parts on, like for prototypes in the beginning, that might be the right way to go. Like in the long run, there'll be composites. You won't use metal in robots. Because you don't, I mean, yeah. if you want a robot, like, you know, if you're going to build a robot that needs to be bulletproof, you probably want to use metal, right? Yeah. There are, like there are specialty robots that you might want yeah. to use metal on. I, but for the giant robot, yeah. I don't think. Right. My assumption was the, what he needs to do, what the, Tesla needs to do is, is manage um, kind of the way the, the civilization, the societies can accept humanoid robots. And so they need to be not afraid of it. And that's why he was very, very particular to say, it's going to be five feet eight. It's going to be very hundred something pounds. You're going to be able to run away from it. Um, it's not going to be able to hurt you. So I think at the beginning, it's going to be very, very, you know, it looks good. Okay. It'll hard. be interesting to see how long that, uh, how long that, because yeah, you know, it's, think, it's just marketing. One of the things that it would be really great to have robots for get it. This is getting off track and talking far future stuff, but, uh, you know, robots will make really great police officers. Well, I well I th we all or, thought that security, that's one of those dangerous security jobs. guards first, right? Walking okay. around the perimeters, visuals, and recording everything. And yeah. like you said, I see something, and that's a child running, and I'm going to go and check it out. You know? Yeah, it's the you know I mean there are all kinds of dangerous, dirty, boring jobs that yeah. that that it would be in that we would like to do the and security guards they're one of those dangerous, boring jobs that humans do right now and do poorly generally. And I mean, it's a totally undercompensated job. It's a, it's a frequently a high risk job. It's a super boring job. Police jobs are like that too. And, yeah. uh, you know, it would be really great to be able to hand that off to a machine that was reliable. Oh, the RoboCop. We'll really we don't want to do RoboCop again. What's that? Build a movie. The movie RoboCop. Oh, yeah. I, no, I think that'll be something that, and soldiers, I mean, it, it, people oh don't God, like the idea of like a uh, robot, but imagine you build non-lethal robots, right? It's a, uh, one of my, uh, one of my fantasy products is uh, I call it the ninja robot, right? Like uh -huh. a, a robot that, I mean, if you look at the, at the amazing, you know, graceful capabilities that we can do robots and simulation with right now, you could imagine, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, AlphaGo went from, you know, being mediocre to good to like, like uh, the, the, you know, the latest generation of Go playing uh, machines is so good that the best players in the world, they can't even understand the games anymore. 
they're like transcendentally. It's like two different gods playing Go, right? Yes. And humans spend all this ink trying to just understand what the thing is trying to do. Imagine that. Imagine creating a a, a creature, you know, that has the physical you know, shape of a human being, but it's got that like godlike ability to move its yes. body around, right? Yes. You know, tra train your jujitsu for a billion years in simulation or whatnot. And now, you know, you've got a robot that can uh, that can disarm anybody without hurting them, right? You're scaring me. Um, all right, I want to get to know you just quickly because we you, you're just uh, brilliant. You've been saying so many smart things, but... You you know I want to I want to know something about you that Dave Lee does not know. I mean, you and Dave are pretty good friends now, so I need to like somehow feel like <laughs> I got to know you something. Something that Dave does not know about you. <laughs> well, Dave, everything every conversation we've had has been published, so <laughs> I know. But we, is there some uh, personal life personal yeah, thing about you personally uh, that you can share for me, like? Uh, Man, I already came out as autistic, right? So, what what did you know as a kid? What were you thinking you were going to be as a as a kid? Did you always know that you were going to be in technology? Yeah. Now, my uh, uh, my my parents have all these stories of me as a kid. Um, yeah, like it was super obvious what I was going to be. It, I, like I was not somebody who ever struggled. Like, oh, you know, fireman, police officer, astronaut. None of those were on the <laughs> table. It was like, what was the first I, exposure? I, what, what was it? Chess? Uh, I played chess for a little while. I was never into games. Like, I like, uh, I like making stuff, and I like thinking about how things get made. So. Uh, I couldn't afford a computer. My family was totally blue collar. So I learned to program a computer on my knees at the local Radio Shack in front of the yes. TRS-80 demo Shack. that they had. Yes. And uh, I taught myself assembly language by buying, I bought a Z80 reference manual for the assembly language. And, uh, and I would write assembly programs in my head. And then I, I had actually learned all of the opcodes so that I could so that I could assemble them down to byte codes and I could sit at the computer and I could type in the byte codes and run the programs. Wow. <laughs> so that is probably the geekiest thing I ever did in my life. I spent a summer memorizing the Z80 instruction set so that I could yeah. uh, run an assembler in my head. You and I know Radio Shack. Ninety percent of our audience won't know what it is, <laughs> really? what it was like. Is it really? I guess it's really gone now, isn't it? Oh, that was a big on. part of my childhood. All right, let's let's end this with rapid fire uh, predictions. I know you don't want to do this, but I'm gonna, you know, just take a guess. Uh, September 30th comes. What are we gonna see? Uh, what are the capabilities? What 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 is it gonna look like? Um, what is a demo? Yeah, just any quick anything that well, you can predict, and we're gonna a, see. Optimus is a humanoid robot. They'll they'll bring out a human. I think. Like if they can make it walk around on stage or do any kind of yeah. locomotion demo, like I'll be impressed. If they can do yeah. some basic, you know, manual handling of things on a table or whatnot, like I would find that impressive. Um, the I think that the things that are going to be impressive to the audience that they want to impress as a recruiting mm. event are probably not the same things that are going to be impressed. Like mm. I I have a hunch that 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 the you know the twitterverse is going to be totally underwhelmed by what gets mm -hmm. demonstrated because they're not going to get it um the tesla's just started using neural networks for bipedal robots on the kind of scale that they want like it's a big project 
they have to build a lot of infrastructure uh, in terms of in terms of tools and testing environments. They have to decide what their whole approach is going to be. Uh, they can do FSD for a lot. They, I mean, you can extend FSD. You know, it's ability uh, the perception model, and you can uh, you can write heuristic programs for a while. I mean, because FSD is basically neural networks for perception, and neural networks producing some planning stuff, and then and then a significant amount of human written heuristic code that sits on top of that that defines rules for how they want the system to operate. That'll change over time. Like more of that code will come out. Uh, so, you know, a good question is like, are they satisfied with that for the humanoid robot in the short run? If they are, you might see demonstrations of some, uh, of some kinds of, uh, you know, manipulating objects in the real world or moving around inside the real world that would be useful and meaningful, uh, stuff. Uh, but those won't be demonstrating any kind of really foundation, foundational capabilities. If you want to impress uh, if you want to impress roboticists, you probably want to demonstrate some really simple, cap some really basic capabilities that show that you have a functional platform that's capable, like it's broad and it's relatively general. And then maybe some pretty fancy demos of what you can do in simulation and how you're translating that's that to the robot. Yeah. Like that would be an approach that you could do. If Because I want Tesla could go the sim to real route where essentially they plan to train in simulation and then demonstrate that they can take that learned behavior that they train in simulation and go. move it onto the robot body and have the robot body actually produce something to do yes. something in the real world. Like if you could do that on a bipedal robot, Experts in the space would be really impressed because that hasn't been demonstrated yet. But it's not going to be wow. necessarily really impressive to a lay audience. I love and, it. And and um, Dojo is going to be live, and they're going to show that maybe the simulations there are much I faster. They'll even talk about Dojo. Maybe they will. So Elon, I did too. Not talk about Dojo. What? Uh, yeah. I mean, I hope we get a. I hope they tell us what's going on with Dojo. It, like I, uh, my. My guess was that that they're at the like single rack, you know, or four rack kind of scale that they don't have a full dojo running. So if they come out and they say, we've got a full up dojo, 10 racks with all the plates running and we can run some basic stuff on it at scale. Like I'd be really impressed if they got, if they were at that level now. Now it being Tesla, they do that kind of stuff. Sometimes they get way out ahead of the game and they have really impressive results in a, in a short period of time. Normally, for the, this kind of development effort, you do a lot of work at a single rack before you move to a multi-rack system. And uh, so I would kind of expect them to be at the single or two or three rack kind of scale. Okay. Now that's a lot of compute. It's useful. There's all kinds of stuff they, that, that they could do on that. It's way too soon for them to have the range of tools available for Dojo that would allow them to offload everything that they do on their NVIDIA. Like, I don't, I think it, it, you know, it's a fine thing to say, yeah, Dojo will be successful if we want to turn our NVIDIA cluster off. That's true. It's certainly true. Um, but the thing is, I, it's kind of not a, you know, it's not a good idea to try to make Dojo do everything that the NVIDIA cluster does. Because you can buy an NVIDIA cluster, right? Whereas you can't buy a Dojo. It's don't, you know, don't use the don't use Dojo to do things Dojo's not good at. It's just a waste of Dojo, right? So keep your NVIDIA cluster and use it for the stuff Dojo's not. Dojo is super specialized for the neural network training part of it. 
I mean, that's what it's going to be 10x better than the NVIDIA cluster is. But mm-hmm. there's all this commercial software that you can buy, that you can just buy and you can plug into the NVIDIA cluster and it just runs. And if you want to do that on your Dojo cluster, you got to get a, you know, you got to get 100 guys and they got to sit in a room for a year to make that package work for you. And it's just not a good use of your money and time. So I don't expect to see them actually turn off the NVIDIA cluster, but they might not use it for training neural networks, which would be equivalent. Like if... If Dojo's good enough that they never want to train neural networks on the NVIDIA cluster, that's a win because that's where all the money's going in, in compute. Yeah. Like that's the real heavy lifting for Tesla's future compute needs is, you know, that was both. the thing. I tell this story that came out of uh, uh, when, um, uh, when Google first started spinning up neural networks for language models, uh, they had all these services that they wanted to roll out and they couldn't because their current because their estimate is like if we actually took these services we want to run and we ran them across all of our markets we would need we don't have enough data centers we would need mm-hmm. many times more than data centers 10 times as many 100 times as many and so they were forced to build a specialized neural network inference chip because they didn't have enough computers in the whole world to run the services that they wanted to. So they built a chip that was that took that did a hundred times more, a thousand times more than their regular box did. And so they needed a thousand times fewer of them. And that enabled them to use neural networks in their data center at the kind of scale that they wanted to. And so Tesla's kind of in that space. Like, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, Tesla. You know, they'll need a hundred data centers or a thousand data centers if they really want to do all the neural network training that that they wow. that they could use in that space. And so, you know, if you're going to need that much uh, data center, it's worth spending the money now to make it so that that costs ten times less. You know, when you get there, than it does right now. And do- that's what Dojo is. The promise of Dojo is that that it could do that. Now, it's possible Nvidia or somebody else will do will beat them to it. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you could, if there was a really good neural network training platform out there that was really inexpensive and really flexible and there's tons of software for it and everybody used it, you'd just buy it. You wouldn't yeah. bother running. So in that case, you'd just shut Dojo off. And so NVIDIA could go oh. do that. I don't think they will. The NVIDIA has got reasons not to because it would undercut their existing business, but maybe they'll do it. Eventually, it'll be, there are a lot of startup companies that are trying trying to do it. But the thing about Tesla building Dojo is, at a minimum, Tesla knows that if nobody else succeeds and nobody else does it, mm, at least they have a solution, right? But it's like, you know, the seats in their cars. I think they would have been yes. happy to buy the seats from somebody else. And just nobody yes. would make the seats they wanted. And so they, they made their own yes, seats, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, James, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I definitely got a lot brighter. <laughs> So thank you for doing that. Um, you are so full of, I, I kept calling them gems because there's so many things. If I peer, I listen back to the recording here that it just was brilliant. So thank you for that. Um, you know, everyone, please follow James on Twitter. He's at James Dauma, D-O-U-M-A. And uh, everyone, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate this. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. It was fun chat. Thanks.